This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Strange Fruit in the Gallant South, exploring the Southern Gothic. So... <laughs> okay, this is no- going to be a, a big one. <laughs> Nothing good ever comes after Madeline saying so in that way. <laughs> okay, let's start off with the easy part at why this yeah. episode. Well, the spooky season specials are continuing this, this week as you'd expect because it's either still october or it's the beginning of november not sure yet yep um <laughs> but we're just going to probably keep up most of the spookiness until christmas at this rate yeah because honestly the spooky season doth not end in october absolutely not um yeah so this <laughs> this episode <laughs> uh is brought to you by the fact that we've obviously talked about the gothic a lot in the past and Jules said look we should probably talk about the southern gothic and I said yes I agree and she's like so can you put an episode together since you know more because I I teach and and, and have more of an academic background when it comes to the southern gothic and, and things like that and I was like sure sure I can do that and then I sent Jules this episode <laughs> writing up my notes like four to five pages later I, I just sent it over and I was like this might be um <laughs> a bit intense it's great every time I say hey Madeline can you put some notes together she sends me a fucking PhD it's great <laughs> I was like, okay I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna start giving you a word limit <laughs> yeah <laughs> So uh, we're going to dive straight in because there is a lot to cover here. Um, Now, genre is, as always, a tricky, slightly shapeless thing, which is full of contradictions with a lot of different threads, flavours and colours. So we cannot cover every single element of the Southern Gothic in this episode. And believe me, even just covering the basics is pushing us to our limit um, in terms of time. So Uh we'll be looking at some of the core elements alone. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if you want more, we can do we can drill down and do more intense, more intense, more focused episodes <laughs> on certain aspects of it. Um, one thing I will say is I initially asked Madeline to put this one together, thinking I hadn't read very much Southern Gothic and didn't. It's only recently in the last week or so I've gone. I didn't mean obviously I meant to do an episode on Southern Gothic, but what I was thinking of when I said Southern Gothic was actually sort of Mexican and Puerto Rican and South American type gothic, which is a completely separate thing. So there's yet another gothic beyond this one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, I've read more than I think I have, but I want to read more of it before we get into that one as well. So leaving yes. that aside, I've actually read, read more Southern Gothic than I thought. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Now, a uh, couple of caveats before we begin uh, the episodes. So um, first is that we're going to be referring to the history of America and the USA throughout this episode. Now, this is in reference to the nation that we know today, starting from the arrival of the colonists um, in 1607. Now, obviously, the American continent and its native people have a much longer, richer history going back further than this. 
However, that really deserves and would require uh, a, a series of other episodes. Um, in fact, if you're interested in that, then try the podcast Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, because he'll give you a nice balanced view of everything. Yeah. Now, the colonial history of America is obviously significantly shorter, and that is going to be our focus point today because it is one of the core sort of uh, influential factors in the Southern Gothic. Uh, the second thing is that the Southern Gothic frequently deals with issues of prejudice and racism, and some people have historically used it as a medium to spread racist, sexist, and ableist ideology and vitriol. However, the genre has largely proved a proved to provide a powerful platform to actually do the opposite. And it plays a significant and important role in America's literary history, informing a lot of horror, thriller, and drama that we see and enjoy today. Um, so sometimes uh, Southern Gothic can have a bad reputation, but it is worth considering that every genre has its ups and downs. Yeah, it's also worth considering the fact that just like 200 years before when the Gothic was getting a bit of a reputation as being frivolous and not mm -hmm. very thought-provoking and, and, you know, only the light-minded would enjoy it, 200 years later people were saying the same about the Southern Gothic to the point that certain celebrated writers of Southern Gothic literature originally said, oh God, don't include me in that genre. I don't write that. And obviously now they're quite happy to be identified that way. So it's funny how tastes and things change. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, before we can get into uh, <laughs> Southern Gothic, we do need to just cover some of the basics of the Gothic. So a brief history of Gothic literature. Um, so examples of what we would now term as Gothic literature can be found across history. Um, and time, including in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Hamlet, and The Tempest. However, the term was first coined by our good friend Horace Walpole around 1764, when he used it as a subtitle for his novel The Castle of Otranto, claiming it was a Gothic novel. Now, the word Gothic alluded to the medieval period, drawing from the perceived fashions and ideas of the Germanic Goths, which were brought into England after the Roman occupation this period of history and the architecture and art that derived from it were seen as dark and barbarous by later peoples and architects who leaned more into the light classical styles. Uh, common features of Gothic architecture include things like flying buttresses, arches, intricate and flourishing detail, and gargoyles. And they are very often seen, um, it's very often seen in churches. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm having a little chuckle and I don't want to derail this, so I'm not going to go into, into detail. But it amuses me so greatly when one age looks back on another age who is aping yet another age even earlier than that and says, well, we don't like what was in, <laughs> what was in fashion back then. Yeah. <laughs> Which is essentially what, And they've got it wrong anyway, because that is absolutely not what the Germanic Goths, Visigoths, Astrogoths were actually like. Yeah, absolutely. Um fascination with the medieval period and all of its trappings uh, surged obviously during the Victorian period where it just everything looped back around and it suddenly got popular again um, and Walpole's book set a standard for the tropes and mo motifs of what would become gothic literature 
Yes. We've talked about this in more detail in past episodes, so do feel free to kind of uh, check out some of those if you're interested in, in sort of knowing more about the kind of the history of the Gothic. So um, we need to also look at what the main elements of the Gothic are. Yes. I'll try um, and get so... through this as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, just Google dissecting dragons with Gothic, and a whole bunch of episodes will come up, and you can enjoy them at your leisure. But yeah. in short, Gothic is a mixture between horror and romance. Romance meaning sensationalism and fantasy, as well as relationships. Yes. It tends to focus on the past, particularly ideas of the dark, barbarous, or romantic ages versus rising industry and development, creating uh, a magic versus science narrative and a past versus future, which we see in a lot of Gothic fiction. Yeah, it works to expose the underbelly of darkness, challenging the idea of civilization and perfectionism by exploring the fears of the audience and the taboos of society. This can include sexuality, desire, violence, incest, prejudice, murder, madness, and many other things which re reflect the zeitgeist of the period. Um, you can check out our Dracula episode for more insight into some particulars. Yeah. Um... Now, this obsession with the past and taboo also makes the ideas of death and decay very prevalent in the Gothic, both in human and architectural senses. So the Gothic frequently features old ruined castles, ancient ancestral homes, graveyards, skeletons, and a lot of dead bodies. Yeah, paired with this, a great deal of emphasis is placed on faith, where a strong link between churches and the Gothic already established through architecture. The darker side the, sorry, the darker undersides of Christianity are explored, including the demonic, the corrupt, and the idea that if there is light, there must also be darkness. Yes. Now, through all of this, the supernatural has a great role in the Gothic, with ghosts, curses, vampires, and other fantastical beings representing the past or acting as metaphors for the fear for the fear, for the fears of the audience. And tied in with the past is also the relationship between man and the environment with emphasis placed on man's waning relationship with the natural world and all the dangers this possesses. The environment becomes a wild, ancient and often hostile power and is often used to create the all-important sense of isolation that the Gothic pivots around and to set the tone and mood using pathetic fallacy. Um, you know, take the Gothic to the nth degree and you've got folk horror, basically. Yes. <laughs> So in short, the major themes of the Gothic, I know this is, we're just flying through this guys, so don't worry, there won't be a test at the end. But the major themes of the Gothic oh, are, <laughs> that's the true horror. Um, <laughs> so the major themes are the past, usually explored with architecture, the environment and the supernatural, the darkest natures of human beings with emphasis on fear and the taboo, debates on morality and, puri and purity with religious iconography, isolation, both literal and imposed by society, and death and decay. Yeah, all of this is very important when it comes to understanding how and why the Southern Gothic deviates and differs from the Gothic found in Europe. Yes. So, now that we've got that covered, let's dive in. So, to begin with, where did the Southern Gothic actually come from? Well, we cannot pinpoint the exact moment that the subgenre was sort of actively recognised, um, but we can tell you that Edgar Allan Poe was one of the major figures in establishing its parameters. 
Um, his work, as well as that of Nathaniel Hawthorne, provided the template of what Southern Gothic would be. Uh, this was then built up by later writers, including Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, and Carson McCullers. Yeah. However, Poe didn't really change any of the main directives and themes of the original Gothic genre. Instead, the only real change was the country of focus. Poe and subsequent authors of this subgenre applied the European template to a country with a vastly different kind of history. So let's dissect how this worked and the changes it brought by re-examining those major themes we've just established and how a change of location alters them completely. Yes. Let's start with the past. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so America, as the nation we know, is very young. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there are people in England today who, are, who live in houses that are older than the USA. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, it's very young. Uh, the history of the continent differs hugely from countries in Europe. Um, now, it would take a whole episode to even scratch the surface of this very fascinating topic. Like Jill said, check out that history podcast. Um, but for the sake of expediency, we're going to focus on a few of the relevant differences. Yeah. So number one, uh, there is no long history of nobility in America. Now, whilst European colonists did prior to independence recognize the kings and queens of their own home nations, there was no real establishment of European aristocracy, nobility and monarchy within the country. No, um, I will just add the fact that they did kind of, it was more than an aristocracy, but wealth and land ownership did confer a kind of quasi aristocratic yeah but it wasn't established from it didn't it wasn't born out of a feudal system the same way it was in europe yeah so it was it was a different kind of sort of class system which was as you say based on wealth um and they were there's this whole thing about the nouveau riche and and stuff like that but we don't have time to get into it <laughs> um in conjunction with this there was no history of architectural influence meaning america does not have a wealth of gothic churches medieval castles old ru roman ruins it doesn't have stonehenge it doesn't have standing stones etc yeah uh the usa has less than 240 years of history um in the country by the time that edgar Allan poe was you know establishing the genre of the Southern Gothic. Um, and with the population largely grown on immigration, this history was actually even shorter for most people. So this means that the political, social and architectural history on which the European Gothic relies is hugely different already. America has no barbarous medieval history. There are there are no haunted castles, there are no ancient churches or noble houses to sort of really draw upon. These staples of the European Gothic do not reflect American history. So in their place, we find the history of colonialism and slavery, with haunted plantations instead, uh, Native American holy sites and burial grounds, and old colonial nouveau riche families. Yeah, just as the European Gothic narrowed in on rural old-fashioned communities to find traces of the old world for their stories, so too did this new American Gothic fiction find its perfect setting in the South. 
where the horrors of this history lay freshest. And I will say that one big aspect of this sort of subgenre for me is the way that because it's a nation of, you know, essentially all immigrants from mm-hmm. various different eras and places around the world, whether willing or unwilling, um, it, it's a melting pot of ideas and superstitions and religious practices and beliefs and, and all that good stuff. Yes, which definitely played a part in the development of the Southern Gothic. Yeah. So, the next thing we're going to look at is the environmental and the supernatural. Now, we've already established that the environment plays an important role in the Gothic. However, the physical environment in America differs vastly from the United Kingdom in terms of landscape, fauna and wildlife, not to mention the weather. Yes. Subsequently, Southern Gothic fiction uses different and sometimes contrasting elements to create tone, tension and atmosphere. For example, in place of the unwelcoming cold, heat is often used as a repressive and even hostile force in the Southern Gothic. Uh, Yeah, it's not usually raining all the time either. (laughs) A typical setting might be a small community or homestead cut off from other people by miles of arid wastelands. This all combines to create a setting that is both isolated and claustrophobic, wild and restricted, common staples of the Southern Gothic genre. Yes. Now, the Southern Gothic also tends to focus more on human and environmental threats instead of the supernatural. Now, one reason um, is probably because while English Gothic stories often have to rely on the supernatural um, in order to create antagonistic foes, the American wilderness can offer up plenty in real life, including bears, coyotes, cougars, scorpions, snakes, alligators, and historically people in the form of bandits, criminals, hostile tribes, etc. Cannibals. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, in England, we we don't, you know, for a long time, we haven't really had those kinds of things. So, um, well, I mean, we've we've had cannibals um, and hostile people and stuff. And and highwaymen. The the emphasis is different, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. You know, it's that old saying about how in the UK, a hundred miles is a long way. In America, a hundred years is a long time. Yeah. And we're like, a hundred years? Merely a hundred years? My, my grandmother could remember the beginning of that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, that's not long at all. Um, and it's not for a nation which can easily trace itself back a couple of thousand years. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, So the difference in the environment and history also means that when supernatural elements are used, Southern Gothic fiction naturally tends to draw on local myths and folklore and this huge body of, um, you know, stories and ideas that are coming from this large group of of immigrants. Uh, Now, this form of the supernatural also therefore adds a unique flavour to the Southern Gothic because of its context. Yeah. Uh, Uh, European Gothic features the foreign supernatural and the ancient supernatural, um, or the assumed supernatural, because not all Gothic fiction is supernatural, but a fair portion of it is. Um, But Southern Gothic plays with the idea of the avenging supernatural, a supernatural force which represents the anger of a subjugated, repressed or massacred people. Um, Or in some instances, 
what I've seen a lot of in Southern Gothic is is very specific repressed family saga, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, this muddies the divide between n the notions of good and evil, uh, which is that if the antagonistic force is justified in their anger, um, or has, you know, that there seems to be a, a reasonable reason for this event, does that mean that they deserve to prevail? Are the protagonists not simply facing the consequences of their own or their ancestors' evil? Um, and can the manifestation of this atrocity be appeased with anything other than blood? So, <laughs> I was having a serious think about that then. Yeah. Uh, you know, survey says no, really. No. Yeah. <laughs> Quite frankly. Yeah. The supernatural in the Southern Gothic subsequently can be used to explore notions of guilt and responsibility, inherited and repressed trauma, prejudice and intolerance, and most notably, human evil and cruelty. Yeah, and to which I would also add uh, the fact that it allows, uh, shall we say, organised and Abrahamic religions, very specifically Christianity, to play out in ways that are incredibly disturbing as well. Yes, and we're going to get into more details about that later on, because, yes, it all starts to tie in. <laughs> For me, sorry, just going through this, it's like it's like building a net and then slowly pulling it all in, and it's only at the end you'll suddenly see, aha, the whole picture, how it all comes together, and then you are entrapped I mean, in the I've, Southern Gothic. <laughs> I've got to say, you sound like a child who's been taken to this most amazing toy shop for the first time. <laughs> Listen, I'm really passionate about the gothic, okay? <laughs> no arguments here. Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is zeitgeist. Yes. So, as well as the physical environment, uh, gothic fiction reflects the zeitgeist of the place and period. The social and religious climate of America, as well as the history and culture, meant that there was a great concern about the human potential for evil. Now, this is reflected in the Southern Gothic, which uses the supernatural um, as a metaphor less than its English counterpart, and tends to focus more on violent crime. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe set this trend with many of his stories, establishing a trend of showing brutal and gory crimes and utilising the grotesque, which has come to be a defining feature of the Southern Gothic. Although he really does have a flavour of the supernatural, even when it's quite clearly just a human doing bad human shit. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, it, obviously the supernatural still plays a very, very important part, but there is a bit of a sort of a shift in focus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, Poe also tapped into another social fear by utilising and actually potentially pioneering a particular form of the unreliable narrator trope, and that is the perspective of the madman. Yeah. Uh, the Telltale Heart is narrated by the murderer, offering both a clear and simultaneously opaque view into the reasoning and motivation for the crime. This created a distinct uneasiness and sense of the uncanny, with clear lines of cause and effect being drawn up that was understandable but not logical. 
the madman narrator would become a staple in American fiction and horror, uh, from the feminist gothic The Yellow Wallpaper, written a few decades later, to the disturbing and violent American Psycho. I can think yeah. of a few others as well. Yeah, there are there are lots of them. Um, the unreliable narrator has also been used in Southern Gothic in order to highlight themes and accentuate the severity and cruelty of a situation. Um, this use of partial or entire, sorry, not this use, but rather the use of partial or entire narrations by children, for example, um, is you see quite a lot in the Southern Gothic, and it helps to contrast the notions of innocence and simplicity with social upheaval and cruelty. Um, and I think, you know, the, we have to talk about one of the best examples of this, which is Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. People don't tend to realise that's a Southern Gothic, but it is. <laughs> you know, I was looking at, I've seen this said somewhere else where I have to admit, when I think of To Kill a Mockingbird, I think of the pitch perfect voice and the amazingly beautiful prose and the clear and precise ideation that's presented through the way this, this novel's argued. I don't think of it as Gothic, but when you really sort of stop and get behind, get behind the scenes almost, if you see what I mean, from what mm -hmm. she intended you to see, the setting is is very definitely Southern Gothic. It is, and uh, for me, it perfectly encapsulates how the Southern Gothic differs from the sort of the more European Gothic. Um, now, I, I think, and it just still amazes me, but I mean, Scout's age essentially allows Harper Lee to balance a discussion about racial prejudice with the idea of the death of innocence, as Scout is made aware of realities in her community. Um, and this is, it's just brilliant because readers are forced to question what innocence actually is. You know, does innocence equate to moral goodness? Um, or is it based on ignorance? And does that then therefore mean that ignorance is morally good? Um, these questions tug at the dichotomy of a community that is both deeply Christian and yet racially prejudiced. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you've never read to, Killing Mo to Kill a Mockingbird, you do need to go away and read that. It's one of those ones that you should absolutely read sometime before you die, ideally sooner rather than later. Um, it's an object lesson, as we've said, in establishing voice, um, but also in looking at issues without becoming preachy because she never preaches once in that entire book you're just invited to consider all the evidence from both sides and it's as you say it's that exploration of the dichotomy of yes we're a god-fearing people and yet at the same time we will stand by and let this dreadful atrocity play out and the fact that as again as madeline said scout ends up losing her innocence innocence in this sense for her i think being mm -hmm. this trust that things will turn out well that her father is effectively god and can make everything better because he goes in knowing that he's not going to win but he does yeah. his damnedest anyway and, and yeah. all the way through he's telling scout well no we need to treat other people well we need to treat other people the way we would like to be treated it doesn't matter who they are yeah Absolutely. So all of that's incredibly important, I think, to, to the story. Yeah, I, I agree. 
for me one of the it's and it's a small scene but it's a scene that really sticks in my head is that that at one point a a lynch mob forms and scout inadvertently breaks it up because she just turns up and there is this little girl and you have this group of angry men um, that Atticus is trying to sort of, you know, placate to stop. And Scout breaks up this, this mob by basically identifying men in the group. By basically yeah. saying, oh, you're so-and-so's father, etc. Yeah. And this, it's such a small but integral scene which really brings those themes to the fore and this idea of innocence and ignorance and things like that, which is, and, and plays around with this, this concept of sort of the illusion of the community. Um, when that is kind of pierced, when it's questioned, the mob dissipates because it cannot exist you cannot they cannot maintain those two you know these two completely opposing sort of characters um these contradictions at the same time they cannot be the good christian christian neighbor and also an avenging murderous group and i say avenging they think they're avenging but i don't even think that they think they're avenging they're just a mob um so it's very interesting and that moves us on to our next topic which is religion and community so religion obviously plays a central part in the southern gothic as the church and religion has often been a central and focal point of communities in the american south Uh, and this provides a perfect atmosphere to discuss morality and the taboo Yeah, the highly conservative Republican backdrop of Southern Gothic provides a perfect canvas to examine repressed emotions. The Southern Gothic often toys with the notion of illusion, playing with the nuclear family of the American dream. The family is hardworking, self-reliant and resilient, often part of a small, close-knit community who share strong Christian values. You know, for example, Preacher. Yes. Which is a great modern Southern Gothic. (laughs) Yes, it really is, and it perfectly encapsulates this idea. Um, Now, the Southern Gothic creates tension by straining this illusion with the unspoken realities that directly contradict it. So, like we just talked about. The notion of self-reliance is underpinned by the poverty of many of the characters in the Southern Gothic. Um, Charity or subsidies are considered abhorrent, with the need to maintain this ideal and appearance of self-reliance perpetuating the the poverty and the situation instead of ever improvements ever being made now at the same time these characters will frequently show a willingness to gain money through theft and trickery instead yeah so for example um ants william faulkner's as i lay dying refused assistance food and lodging for his family while they are traveling leaving his five children to go hungry and suffer he then uses this stringent ideal to emotionally manipulate others into giving him money. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of those... I mean, Faulkner is sort of one of the major figures within a sort of establishing the, the Southern Gothic um, for a lot of reasons. But for me, Ants perfectly encapsulates this in that he, he wants to basically be beholden to no man. Yeah. Um, 
and in doing that essentially he 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 allows the situation to get so bad that you know i think that a group of people offer him a loan of some money like we'll give you some money so that you can complete this journey and he says no i will not be beholden to any man and he and he does it very purposefully so that they just give him the money and that he never has to repay it back and in that point it's not charity it's trickery it's a racket and so yeah so therefore it's allowed it's really interesting um, because this obviously happens a lot in real life. Yeah. I've sort of randomly the odd episode here and there with my other half been watching. Um, it basically it's the cult leader's playbook. It's on Netflix, mm. and it's just well, I wouldn't actually maybe it's not astonishing at all. But the number of cult leaders who actually find their flocks initially in the south. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's it's not that there's an inbuilt mindset or that, you know, th- this thing where there's a sort of snobbishness in other parts of America where country means dumb kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's not a case of that at all. It's the fact that when people were immigrating to America, certain groups of Scottish, Irish, to a certain extent, some Welsh and the, the very lower classes of, of English... Mm-hmm. immigrated to the south and they went north to Appalachia or Appalachia depending on how you choose to pronounce it I think it depends on which side of the mountains you're on um, and they took with them their their home country sort of accents and things so you know the deep south accent where people get all up in arms about um, about white people talking with a specific accent well actually originally it was from somewhere like Cornwall yeah. um, and it, it's just you know the vowel shift has happened slightly but it's very much a lot of the language and stuff has come from there and they were people who came from a background of abject poverty really really intense poverty and violence mm-hmm. violence yeah. was almost the entertainment and they brought all of that with them to the south and so it became embedded in the mindset and became part of the south's culture along with things like southern hospitality strong community ties a yeah. sense of family a sense of duty to your kin and to god um, so all these things together um, meant that, yes, they survived in extremely difficult conditions, but it also didn't really breed this mindset of questioning authority as much. So when someone charismatic a lot came along, like, you know, Jim Jones, for example, yeah, it was far more easy for someone like him to basically play the panpipes and get people to follow him. I'm not blaming yeah. anybody here. I'm not saying it's anyone's fault. It's just certain mindsets and predispositions make you more vulnerable to certain things than others yeah particularly because this it it, it also bred this idea of not trusting um sort of official authority which was also you know um kind of pushed by uh, the, the the civil war and stuff like that yeah and so exactly. you get a lot of you know fear and suspicion about the government um and we don't trust the carpet baggers basically yeah, exactly um because and, and and you know no we don't want to accept any aid from them because it you know it's going to be a trick they'll want something in return um it's going to actually cost us more than we think it's going to cost us and and that might just be pride but it it also could be something else um and so there tends to be this focus on sort of pushing and respecting basically authority figures who challenge the official authority yeah yeah absolutely 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, family is such an intense one in the Southern mm-hmm. Gothic anyway, but it also contrasts the illusion of the nuclear family because, quite frankly, most nuclear families are not like the perf- picture-perfect, um, almost eu- eugenically happy and smiling yeah. <laughs> 2.4 children that they're advertised as being. Um, and, and obviously community itself by often depicting dysfunctional, distrusting and abusive families, very poor families as well. Yes. Um, the protagonists tend to be neither good nor bad and are frequently flawed by off- and often, you know, quite, quite pitiful. Yeah. Um, over the course of the story, they can degrade into moral depravity or redeem themselves. So it's this, the thing where mean beginnings may yet beget noble sons kind of thing, to use the Chinese proverb. Yeah. Um, whereby you can be dirt poor, as in dirt poor, you couldn't afford shoes until you were like 12 or 13 years old kind of thing. And that's not an unusual thing. Yeah. Even now in the South, um, you could, you know, what the fuck's a dentist? Never seen one. Yeah. You live in a trailer. Well, that Living in a trailer is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can go hand in hand with being financially at quite a disadvantage. Yes. Um a good example of this is actually the character of Ballard um, in Cormac McCarthy's Child of God, um, whose situation at the beginning of the story is incredibly pitiable. I mean, we're introduced to this character just as they are being evicted from their home and being made homeless. Um, but uh, they're, they're a violent, he's quite a violent person. and this violence becomes increasingly grotesque the more isolated the character becomes in the story. Um, To be honest, he's never a particularly likeable person, but you can at the beginning go, well, I kind of feel bad for him. Uh, Yes, they talk about his, you know, violence in his childhood and stuff like that, but then it's also revealed his father committed suicide. Um, And then, of course, uh, he starts committing necrophilia and murder and stuff like that um it's a Heathcliff conundrum isn't it 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 is it it, and it really yeah but it's like it's much worse (laughs) well just because there was no on-page necrophilia there was was necrophilia necrophile cuddling at least yeah anyway moving aside from that (laughs) um but yeah but it it perfects perfectly encapsulate this idea of sort of of this sort of someone who is, you know, introduced to us as a kind of a neutral party, and it's over the course of the story that they we will see whether the the balance between the 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 badness within them and the pitiableness within them basically you know which way it goes, which we don't tend to get in European Gothic. We tend to have, well, we do sometimes, but our protagonists tend to be more on the side of good. Yeah, particularly if they're little orphans or whatever who've come from a difficult background, they tend to make good. They don't tend to go yeah. the other way. Yeah, so they tend to be pitiable and good. Yeah, Heathcliff okay. is definitely an anomaly. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, finally, Christian ideals and practices are frequently tied with violence and the taboo. Adultery, rape and incest are frequent themes in the Southern Gothic, contrasting religious purity with the indecent and grotesque. Yeah. This is very much a big theme in a book I mentioned recently, which is by Ashley Winstead, and it's called Midnight is the Darkest Hour. And Mm -hmm. it is set in a small Louisiana town on the edge of a swamp. Yes. And the main, you know, the protagonist's father is a self-styled preacher, even though he's had no religious training. 
Um, and this is a theme that comes up a lot, I think, in the Southern Gothic, is you'll have a main character of some kind, kind who is a preacher and who has basically just decided that they are the avatar of God on Earth. They've had mm-hmm. no religious training, nothing like that. They, they've not been to... <laughs> They've not they've not been to any kind of religious seminary or received, you know, counselling training. I mean, the the sort of things you have to do to become a priest nowadays. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty stringent training. You're you're essentially getting a degree. In some cases, you're actually getting a doctorate. It depending yeah. on what you're going for. And I'm not saying that all these people are unimpeachable because quite clearly they're not. Um, but I do think having some sort of framework in, in mind for when you're going to be the the counsellor slash marriage advisor slash moral advocate, etc. of an entire small cut-off community, mm-hmm. I think having a framework there is probably a good idea rather than just letting someone roll in, set up shop and sing the right songs to the right people and then suddenly they're basically a king of their own little fiefdom it's incredibly yeah. disturbing it does still it does happen in the uk i will say there's been mm-hmm. cases of it in places like wales and um in southern england but they're easier to root out here because we have you know there's there's less space so people tend to hear about things <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um, and again, combined with that isolation and things like that, you know, it, it, things can start to feel very cultish. Yeah, it's like um, I don't necessarily have an issue in theory with liber- libertarianism, but it's when it's a case of, no, everyone has the absolute right to do whatever they want. And I'm like, yeah, but some of the things that people want to do are not only morally reprehensible, they're legally wrong. So, yes. yeah, I do kind of have an issue with people not curbing some desires that are definitely verboten, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and this is something we actually is reflected in, in specifically some of the more modern uh, sort of Southern Gothic, uh, where authors have started to flip the narrative by villainizing the Christian ideal instead of using it as a contrasting point. Um, So by creating this sort of link between Christianity and depravity. Um, Now, religious practices are heavily infused with cultish symbolism in, uh, in these kind of stories. And often actually increasingly pagan sort of practices. Uh, Now, Stephen King uses this all the time. Yeah, I mean, he's Stephen King. He's King's gonna king, basically. King's gonna king, yeah. Um, And we, you know, we see even when he's moving more kind of into horror, um, he does write a lot of Southern Gothic things as well. You see that in the case of of, um, Salem's Lot, for example, I think would definitely be considered more of a Southern Gothic. It's certainly Um, an Americana Gothic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, you know, it is set in the South as well. It is set in Maine. Um, and it does deal with these kind of the, you know, these various sort of elements and ideas, um, whilst drawing from obviously an original Gothic, uh, book. Uh, but he also, we also see it very particularly in The Mist. Yeah. Where you, you have this, you know, this woman who is highly religious and at first, no one really kind of likes her. But when the situation gets bad, people turn to her and she becomes this religious leader. 
Um, and it is very cultish to the extent where they basically they are trying to commit human sacrifice. Yeah. They're basically saying these are the ones that the monsters these people are the ones that the monsters want. We will sacrifice them to appease their sinners, therefore. And these are this is much more actually, and when I say pagan practices, basically this perceived pagan practices as well. You know, this idea of, of human sacrifice, this idea of um, you know, sort of certain rituals and things like that. It becomes very ritualistic. Um, and starts to appear much more like the the horrors that we would see in previous sort of gothic stories where it was more sort of satanic rituals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, this is also frequently tied with examinations of repressed sexuality, moral quandary, identity, and trauma. And I think that there are a lot of sort of modern writers who are using the Southern Gothic to particularly explore religious trauma. Yeah, definitely. Um, I read a book recently, which I cannot remember if I recommend it or not, but it's Black Sheep by Rachel Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been so into horror this year. I found like about half a dozen new horror writers whose work I really enjoy, and Rachel Harrison's one of them. Mm-hmm. She kind of writes campy horror, mm-hmm. which, you know, in one element doesn't take itself too seriously, and yet, on the other hand, also really has something to say. Black Sheep follows the essentially very favorited and pampered daughter of a (laughs) of of a a horror film star who just happens to live in a cult i'm not saying that there are any film stars out there who happen to be part of well-known religious cults or anything obviously Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that (laughs) (laughs) except obviously i kind of am but anyway um rachel harrison kind of takes this idea and runs with it and this person is not especially likable and yet you can't help identifying with her she's 90 percent selfish everything she does um for the first sort of 80 percent of the book she's used to being the princess the prom queen etc and she managed to escape from her cult because she just didn't like them having control over her life Mm -hmm. and then she gets a wedding invitation to her best friend who also lived in the cult her wedding with the boy that she had been in love with who you know she'd always assumed he would marry her but he hadn't run away with her he'd stayed and now he was marrying her best friend and it draws her back to this cult um you know like the the prodigal son as it were yeah at which point you know you're still kind of going well where's the horror this is this is weird this is gross and anyone who's not part of a cult isn't looking at this and going Um, just because it it seems that abnormal Mm -hmm. and then more and more things start to unravel and you realize this is actually not a christian cult at all it's kind of a reverse christian cult if you will it's it's an incredibly well done book it's very very funny Um, and it, it is absolutely leaning on the southern gothic from things like you know this huge dutch style mansion where her mother lives which is full of memorabilia from all the horror films mm-hmm. so it's kind of like i was walking down the hallway and the nine foot werewolf made me jump in the sense of there is a nine foot model werewolf standing in the hallway kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just decked out in like with trophies of her mother's successes um, that's that's terrifying but also kind of amazing 
What I kind of like about it is it finishes off with a little sort of aside from this group of paranormal investigators who've turned up, you know, with their, their, their dictaphones and their cameras and they're desperately trying to work out what happened and was there a missing daughter of this cult, this missing, you know, the cult that's just disappeared off the face of the earth kind of thing. Because, spoiler alert, something really bad happens to them all. Um, okay. <laughs> and they're chasing the story. And I just think, yes, while that turns up in an awful lot of fiction, in modern Southern Gothic, your paranormal investigators are almost a staple. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I mean, I really do think that Edgar Allan Poe kind of really, really sort of pushed this and created this this idea where you do have that PI. And the fact of the matter is, is that Southern Gothic also had a massive influence um, in the creation of the of the noir genre. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is why you will t- you will actually see kind of a lot of similarities within that. And another big thing, um, which is one of the particulars that you will find in the Southern Gothic that sort of helps to define it um, and which has kind of moved on into other sort of forms of American horror um, and crime is the grotesque, which I mentioned earlier, but I'm just going to re-emphasize it because the grotesque um, is used very interestingly in the Gothic because it helps to, again, offer that strange contrast and that that question of moral quandary. Now, obviously, um, in the past, uh, in fairy tales and in the Gothic, the idea of sort of moral um, goodness and beauty being uh, one and the same um, has been used historically. And what's interesting in the Southern Gothic is that they do kind of put this notion of um, grotesque sort of uh, people, as in physically grotesque um, and sort of morally grotesque, um, these two things being sort of combined together, but also actually being totally contrasting as well. Um, so uh, Boo Randall, for example, in uh, Heart in To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you mean Boo um, Radley? Sorry, Boo Radley, not Radley, sorry. <laughs> Boo Radley. Um, he is an example of the grotesque, um, and that's the official term. Um, but he is not a an immoral character. In fact, he's, he's proven to be very kind, very gentle, very sweet. Yeah. And y- you often see that, and the Southern Gothic really likes to have sort of shocking... Um, depictions of injuries, of corpses, of of decay, and all these kinds of things. Again, if you think of Preacher, you've obviously got the young boy um, who shot himself in the head. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, um, I'd also add a couple of T. Kingfisher books, because she doesn't just write cosy fantasy romance. No, she doesn't. She does actually delve into the Southern Gothic as well. <laughs> she, uh, you know, proper horror. But um, yeah. one of them is What Moves the Dead, which is a... It's it's technically set in a sort of fantasy world, but it has a real Southern Gothic flavour, and it is a retelling of the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that one. It, it's fine. Uh, the one I really liked is A House with Good Bones, where you mm-hmm. have your very typical girl goes, I say girl, but she's in her 30s, goes back to her um, 
grandmother's house uh, after her grandmother dies to sort out everything and then weird stuff starts happening and it turns out there might be something buried in a lot of things buried in the garden and around the house and yeah and things go from yeah. there what really tips her off initially are all the vultures standing on the lampposts outside the house yeah and interestingly you've also got her mother who's basically starting to put out all the confederate you know things again and acting very oddly yeah yeah, so, yeah that, it's yeah. a really good one and it's a fun one it's not just horrific and just horrible it's there's elements of horror but it's accessible i think to more people yeah absolutely so yeah so you will find the grotesque um in the form of dead bodies but also um illusions to grotesque acts and the question of actually um is the grotesque inherently morally bad um and when we look at something and say, ah, is that grotesque, that's grotesque, um, is that actually just cruelty on our part, etc. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I have to, at this point, just mention, as I've mentioned it in the past, uh, Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it, it's so Southern Gothic, it's almost out-Gothicked itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it was allegedly based on a, on a true story, but I think the actual book comes quite a long way from the actual true story. Um, and it's about four children who are imprisoned in the attic of this great house by their mother, who is trying to get back into the graces of her parents, who are very, very wealthy and Southern. Um, and the only way to do that is to pretend that she never had children with the uncle she incestuously had a relationship with. Right. produced four children as as we've mentioned and it has all the hallmarks it has grotesque acts it has cruelty it has the um the big houses and you know the heat and the the isolation that you know the confining the locking of someone up the whole yeah. thing with the attic for a for, for a start um, yeah the way that you know small vulnerable innocent people get treated that's kind of a gothic trope as well so yeah massively so, yeah and incest incest out of the the wazoo with those books yeah i'm not saying this is a good thing i'm just saying it's there yes absolutely so yeah that is our fly through uh <laughs> examination of the southern gothic i mean i mean what are your we'll, we'll finish it up but like what are your final kind of thoughts on the genre jules um, as a medium, just, I mean, to be honest, just as a piece of entertainment, I've enjoyed many Southern Gothic books. I mean, one of my favourite books of all time is The Splendour Falls by Rosemary Clement Moore, mm -hmm. who also wrote Texas Gothic and Spirit and Dust, um, which are all basically Southern Gothic stories. Um, and it's just one of my favourite ghost stories, The Splendour Falls. It's just brilliant. And it it is set in this antebellum house with a backdrop of, you know, the South and, and you know, the Confederacy and everything full way. Yeah. Um, so I like it just as a piece of entertainment. I also like it as a vehicle for exploring the bones of, of current sources of tension, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but it was... Oh, if it comes back to me, I'll add it. But 
there's a really great one which was taken from the perspective of a, a, a small black child who died that child's ghost following mm-hmm. another um, impoverished family in the south through um, through their own trials and tribulations um, so there's loads of good examples of it and I think as you know to be honest like any any piece of literature as long as it really sticks its landing as long as it's not preachy and yet it still gives me plenty to chew on and plenty to think over I think it's great um yeah I'm not sure whether I'd actually write it because I don't I kind of feel that I'm not embedded enough in the the environment and the culture to really yeah. do a true portrayal of it but I'd you know I'd love to write the gothic I don't just don't know if I'd be able to write southern gothic because of that yeah I agree I think it's one of those things where, again, I have read lots of um, Southern Gothic, um, often without even realising that's what it was in the past. So the same as you know, you, I, I read obviously To Kill a Mockingbird, and then it was only later I was like, this is this is a Gothic novel, um, but it's a Southern Gothic novel. Yeah. Um, but uh, like you, I just don't think I'd be able to write it. Uh, nor do I have any draw to write it, even though I enjoy sort of reading it and watching it. Um, well, some some examples of it um because it is inherently rooted in certain experiences and life um and very much of the you know it it draws on the zeitgeist of sort of american society uh which you know we're exposed to on such a level that we can kind of understand and appreciate but which we don't kind of live yeah. So I just feel that that's not something that I could faithfully or truthfully kind of really delve into in a way that would be true, well, you know, well-reflected, well-rounded um, and earnest. I think the most I could do really is take elements of it um, to fortify other parts of the story. So, you know, the same way True Blood did. Yeah. Um, or the Vampire Diaries or something like that where it wasn't really a Southern Gothic but at the same time it took elements of the Southern Gothic to add flavour but even then as as I've said and you've just said as well to really get that feel I think you almost need to be properly embedded in the culture yeah absolutely um, have, do you have any favourite Southern Gothic books or stories? Um, yeah, as obviously, as I said, uh, The Splendor Fools by Rosemary Clement Moore. Um, I still have a morbid fascination for Flowers in the Attic. I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it a favourite, but there's something about it that's, that's in there. Uh, maybe it was because I read it when I was 13. Yeah, maybe. Um, and I guess I, I've, I've really enjoyed elements of it in various other things. Mm. As I said, so I've enjoyed it. And stuff like you know the vampire diaries the books not the not the show yeah and uh true blood i think it's more in the show than it's in the books um there, there's various things but yeah rosemary clement moore would kind of be my go-to i guess just because they are they are class- classic gothic ghost type stories <laughs> yeah i mean anne rice is also obviously she she writes a lot of southern gothic yeah, too the, sorry i should have said the mayfair which is absolutely yeah. <laughs> 100 percent southern gothic and there's another author who i want to get to who writes the house of crimson and clothes series mm. um her name is escaping sarah m credit that's it 
I've read one book and it was kind of like the Mayfair, which is, um, but it, it aimed in a different direction. And I think that's really going to be up my street, but I haven't read enough to really say definitely, but it's looking promising, put it that way. Okay. I have to check that out as well. So yeah, that is the end of our Southern Gothic exploration. As always, we're very open um, to your comments. Um, perhaps you are American and you feel that we've missed something um, or that uh, you're, you, you'd like to even contradict us or, or reaffirm what we're saying. You know, we, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this um, and your experience. Um, and what some of your favourite sort of Southern Gothic uh, stories are as well. So do let us know. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes. Now, this is slightly unlike my usual fare. And also, it's not really Southern Gothic. <laughs> But it does have gothic elements. Um, this is the Booker Prize winning novel, The Seven Moons of Marley Almeida, by, uh, let me take a deep breath here, by Shehan Karanatilaka. And I've probably said that wrong, so I'm very sorry. But um, it's an amazing book. It's basically set during the Sri Lankan Civil War when you had at least six different parties all at war with each other and everybody, absolutely everybody, was being an arsehole. The main yeah. character is Mali, who is a war photographer. He He's not the best kind of guy. He He's kind of a serial cheater. He's a gambler. Um, and he is a, a closeted queer as well, because it was not safe to be openly queer in Sri Lanka during the 1980s. Yeah. The chances are you would have ended up beheaded and left in a watercourse, which is actually what has happened to him. He knows he's dead. He knows he's been dismembered and dumped in a lake. He has no idea who did it. And the list of suspects is as long as your arm. And he has, he's lingering in limbo with the demons and the ghouls. And he has seven moons in order to help his girlfriend, you know, his on paper girlfriend, if you like, and his his long-term male lover, um, his actual boyfriend rather, because he's had many, many, many other lovers. See, see above, RE cheating. Um, and his mother, uncover who actually murdered him and get the photographic film the negative film that is uh, out there because it reveals some important stuff about the the, the events that were going on and it's, it's kind of a he goes he goes on this weird sort of quasi spiritual journey um, and ends up confronting the loss of his life um, all the people he loved and all the thing, the shitty things he did in life because you know none of us can exist in life without doing a few shitty things and he hadn't yeah. really tried to be the best person he could be possibly because the world wasn't being particularly kind to him anyway and it's yeah. just a really fascinating book initially i was put off because it starts off in second person and i'm not a massive fan of second person however the second person is in short bursts and it really it's only there to kind of embed you in the idea of the fact that you are Matley, you are someone who has been dismembered and left in a lake and uh, you are the person who's going to solve this mystery and then you get these large segments of very flavourful life from Sri Lanka in the 1980s as he tries to solve the mystery it's, it's a fascinating book, I can see why it won the Booker Prize, it absolutely deserved to 
That sounds really interesting. And I will add that it is an absolutely fantastic audiobook. The audiobook narrator was absolutely superb. Oh, okay. That's good to know. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>